No, I say I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I would get a taxi back to Manchester. The only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking mentality <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country produced players and where we play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony, I have to be honest with you. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And Vitek is there! Robbie Brady brings us all to our Hello and welcome to another edition of the Tree at the Back podcast brought to you by BackpageFootball.com Joining me this week is Enda Higgins and Phil Green How are you lads? How are we doing? Evening lads So Phil and Enda it's been a while now since uh, the three of us have been in the one room together Phil, any any particular reason the, to this week's return or do you just like to, to kick a guy while he's down after a, a, a tumultuous week? Yeah, d- definitely nothing to do with uh, Manchester United soccer manager and Liverpool uh, returning to winning ways uh, or anything like it No, completely coincidental and definitely not planned Waiting in the long grass around and like it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> so, of course, the uh, inevitable has happened, and Oli Gunnar Solskjaer has finally been taken out the back and put out of his misery. But not before an exit interview for the world to see the pain in his eyes as he's wheeled out like a big brother contestant who's just been evicted <laughs> from the madhouse. But goddamn, those social numbers are through the roof. <sighs> Michael Carrick got off to winning ways against Villarreal in his role as interim interim. We'll talk about that. The Pochettino and Zidane switcheroo that looks increasingly likely to happen. And some of the big Premier League talking points as Big Klopp puts little Arteta back in his box. The latest madness in the world of League of Irish football as Watford sacked their manager before a huge relegation playoff. And we'll also take a look ahead to a big week for the Irish women's side as they look to build on that massive win last time out against Finland with home ties against Slovakia on Thursday night and Georgia next Tuesday as they look to keep momentum going in their dreams of World Cup qualification. Um, so Wendo, I don't, I don't think there's anywhere else we could start really um, than the big news of the day and 4-1 loss to Watford at the weekend's the straw that finally broke the camels back there but uh, I think it's been coming a while and you must be uh, fairly relieved to, to finally see some action. Yeah, I, like relieved is the wrong way to to put it. But um, as we said a few weeks ago, when any manager is down for th- you know three games to save their job, it, it's usually just a matter of time. And I suppose the only surprise is how quickly the decline has come. You know, when we had Daniel on a few weeks ago, we all expected Oli to get the the season um, and to be able to get the full value from the squad that he's finally put together, a squad he's been working on for, for three years. Um, and he seemed desperate to get two decent players in every position, which I think you could argue he probably has now, uh, putting the injuries aside. But his failure to rotate, his in-game tactics more than anything else, which has been a problem since the start of his tenure, really cost him in the end. And the last two months have just been a painful decline, really since the Leicester match. I flagged after the West Ham match in the cup that he didn't look like a guy who was too upset to be knocked out of a cup competition. And when you haven't won a trophy at United, uh, and that's been flagged by so many people, I don't think he was in a position to kind of shrug his shoulders. And I mean, his language after that match was very much kind of, we gave it a go, whatever. But uh, it, it really wasn't a pretty sight in the past couple of months. But it's a shame. I, I think he deserved a better type of exit than this, I thought we'd, we'd get through the season and somehow stutter to top four. But as we know with the Glazers, we've seen under Van Hal and, and Jose in particular, when top four is in jeopardy, it's the only thing that really makes them act mid-season. Um, and f- failure to integrate Sancho in particular. Uh, I can understand why he started Greenwood right wing at the start of the season, but really uh, when you spend two years chasing a player, and pay the fee that he did, you have to find a way to integrate him pretty quickly. And and especially a player who's as technically good as Sancho as we finally saw last night. 
Um, I wouldn't read too much into Ronaldo changing United's tactics because we've not pressed for a very, very long time anyway. So the Liverpool match was probably the time to act and certainly the City match. And with the international break coming up, I'm surprised they didn't. But it almost felt like the United board were relieved that Conte wasn't available anymore. So that wouldn't be kind of hung over them that they didn't choose him when they didn't have a manager to go for. And the Pochettino talk, I think, is a bit premature from a lot of the English media who are just kind of trying to put two and two together. Uh, PSG are an extremely proud side, as we saw with the uh, Mbappe stuff in the summer, when they basically turned down 200 million for a player with 12 months left on his contract. So I don't think they'd be too happy with a manager walking away from, you know, on paper, the best front three in the game, even if they get their 10 million or whatever, they don't need that. Leonardo and, and Co would much rather save face and, and just deal with Pochettino in the summer. So I imagine it'll be an interim somewhere else. But it's a shame for Ollie that all the good thing he's done in terms of squad morale and, and you know the fans enjoying the game, which is important for me. Obviously, other people will talk just about trophies, but I do think he had a lot more to fix than just on the pitch. And he managed to do that, but then he stayed around so long that it it turned against him in the end in terms, you know we've said many times Pogba's going to go in summer, Van de Beek wants to move away, Matt has a bag of misery in any <laughs> pictures you see. So there's six or seven players, Cavani as well, who went to Uruguay uh, in the mid-season break, even though he wasn't picked for the national team, wasn't fit so and hasn't been seen since. So there's a, there's a lot of question marks. But he put so much effort into fixing the squad and fixing those type of issues, and now it's kind of gone 360 and almost gone against him again. So it was very difficult to persist with it for the rest of the season and sometimes it reaches an inevitable point where you just have to make a change and and it reached that point now um when it should have happened weeks ago but um you know he gave it his best shot and it probably should have only lasted either six or 18 months and when Pochettino was available that was the time for United to act same way that Liverpool did with Klopp when he was available and Chelsea with Tuchel but unfortunately the suits upstairs didn't realize that and it's probably come back to haunt them now Phil, what do you make of all the, the madness over at Old Trafford? Yeah, I think what, what shines true to me from what Enda said and what we've kind of been observing over the past couple of weeks is just that it is the decisions that are coming from the higher echelons of Old Trafford that is really the hardest thing to wrap your head around. I mean, listen, listen as they did to Watford at the weekend, was like a completely untenable position for Solskjaer to be in. But nothing about that performance uh on its own would have been enough. I mean, everything that happened, as Enda said, against Liverpool, against City, you know, any kind of rational, well-run football club, if they reach a point of wanting to get rid of the manager, they do try and maximise it at a time around an international break or something like it, where you at least have a little bit of time to appoint the right person, let them kind of bet in. And it worked out in the very short term in that uh, with Carrick and the dugout, they managed to get a good result last night, but it was a big risk to take and kind of a, a big roll of the dice for what was a really important fixture I mean they could have just done this exact same stuff before the international break and been in the exact same position except Michael Carrick would have had two weeks to get used to the idea that he was the interim to the interim um, as opposed to having to go right in and doing a press conference on basically like his his, his second day uh, or whatever whatever the case was so it, it does feel like this is kind of the logical conclusion of all the mismanagement that has happened since they got rid of Mourinho um, like even and like I'm kind of I'm kind of stuck on the interim manager thing because I absolutely think that if they can't get the person they want and if the person they want is Poch and it has to be the summer, I think wait until the summer is the right thing to do. It's just the idea that you appoint. I mean, Valverde is the latest name that's getting touted as being maybe a front runner for this. Like it just feels it feels like a weird thing to do to bring in somebody who is kind of a pretty random manager. Uh, to to run the club for a couple of months and then you appoint the person you actually want. It doesn't feel like something that happens typically. I mean, I know you had Goose Hitting coming in as kind of a long-term caretaker at Chelsea, but he kind of, like, he did that gig a couple of times and felt like that was a very established role for him. Appointing heretofore a normal manager, in quote in quotation marks, of, like the likes of Valverde, to keep him till the end of the season and then get somebody new feels a bit weird and a bit strange. I think it's just a logical end point of all this mismanagement that's happened probably before Mourinho, but definitely since the decision to sack Mourinho, they've kind of made one bad decision after another in a, in a kind of a football administration sense. Um, 
like if I don't know Ender how you're still going, I, like I would have been driven mad by this, this stage. Like <laughs> honestly, it's like it, 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 like I should be as a Liverpool fan enjoying it a lot more than I am. I'm actually exasperated by it. Yeah. Like even last night, and listen, I know like the world's mother was joking about the Rio Ferdinand thing. Let Carrick write whatever he wants, but like it was like like under Solskjaer, a good result was like kind of starting to erase a lot of the very evident problems that are that are in that squad and it's like it, no it's not fixed don't like you know don't even think it no it's fine they won it's good but like it's nothing's fixed you know it's like actually assess things as they are and um, if the potch thing is doable now absolutely do it like you said and it does seem a little bit more tenuous than it seemed earlier in the in in the weekend i know julian laurent thinks it's doable but not nailed on it seemed like some of the english journals were saying it's basically a fait accompli um I mean, if they can do him now, do it. If they have to wait till the summer, I think personally he's definitely the right person for it. I think if they got get the appointment right, they have an awful lot there to work with. Like you said, Emma, there is a lot of dead wood cleared out and a lot of good players brought in. I think Solskjaer will be remembered, I think, more fondly with kind of hindsight of 15 years, especially if United get their act together. You think of somebody like Roy Evans with Liverpool, the job was probably a bit too big for him to have ever gotten it. He got it kind of as a legacy play, but Evans did some exciting things with Liverpool when they were coming from kind of a low ebb under Souness. Solskjaer has done some important things for United and they're coming under a low ebb from Mourinho. I think with a little bit of distance, it might be more kindly remembered uh, if United do get this next one right. I think that's important. Yeah, and just the reaction to last night, it was almost like deja vu. Um and if you look at the match up until Ronaldo's goal, I mean, if De Gea had his form from last season, we're probably two or three nil down. So <laughs> it wasn't exactly vintage United by by any stretch. I enjoyed the win immensely and we definitely needed it in terms of either convincing a decent interim to come in or just for the squad morale. But certainly, as you said, Phil, nothing is fixed for sure. And it, it did already feel like that kind of reaction where it's like oh why didn't they play like this under Solskjaer whereas like that was almost a um a typical Solskjaer performance yeah. really in Europe yeah. you know uh where you're just kind of winging it until somebody does something and then you have pretty much the two best attackers on the pitch scoring goals so uh that did surprise me a bit uh from you know a couple of the ESPN PN guys in particular who should know better at this stage having covered United for a very very long time so uh, yeah we'll see what happens I'm just so struck by how poorly planned this has been from from the powers that be. I mean, we've we've waxed lyrical about Woodward at this point uh, and questioned his 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 status making football decisions. But I mean, if Julian Laurent and and some of the the British media are to believe, like, and Pochettino is doable to a certain extent, like, surely as a club. You know, it's 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 something you do say after a Liverpool game or even the City game is to just throw a little feeler out to PSG and see. You know, if we were to come knocking for Poch, you know, what are the chances? Like, what would we need to do? Um, and even get to a point now where, as untenable as it was after Watford, like, are you are you looking at your fixtures coming up? Are you looking at? I mean, they, they have Chelsea next and Arsenal, two very, I suppose, losable fixtures in, in many ways, but. It doesn't seem like they've made any plan whatsoever for for possible interims. Um, you know, the likes of Steve Bruce was getting bandied about. Like these random names have been thrown out. Um, and if you look log on to the, the gossip columns every day, there's a new list of four or five names. That, there hasn't seemed to have been any plan whatsoever uh, in terms of succession, even though it's been kind of been from an aerial view. It's looked very likely for the past couple of weeks that they would have had to been in this position where they've had to replace him um, and obviously the, the the other point that a lot of people are bringing up has been the the fact that the likes of Mike Phelan uh, and some of the coaches have been extended um, more recently even though last of the, the writing was on the wall and, and now we're kind of in a position now where Michael Carrick is in charge um, there's reports coming out that you know Carrick and, uh, and McKenna uh, we're, we're trying to, you know, get their plans across, and and Solskjaer was veto, vetoing them, um, and I'm sure that's kind of easier reading at this point, considering Carrick is is in the the dugout at the moment. But, um, I mean, the news then that Woodward is apparently going to have his role extended till the end of the season. I mean, I, I I'm blown away by that because you know 
as poorly ran, the, uh, as as poor owners as the Glazers have been. I mean, they're very good American football owners. Like in the NFL, there's no way the general manager or the guy in charge is picking the next coach when he's going to be leaving in six months' time. I mean, that just doesn't happen in, in US sports. So I'm surprised they've allowed that to, to kind of get to a position in, in, in their soccer team. I mean, it just goes to show that they don't really know what they're doing, and I don't think. <laughs> well, we've known that for a long time, but with Woodward, he is very uh, fan-driven in terms of what will appease the fans. Um, the Ronaldo signing obviously had a lot to do with that and not letting him go to City, but uh, it, it was the same when sacking Mourinho, and I think it was the same with when sacking Solskjaer, to be honest they didn't really think about the weeks to follow. It just was something that, you know, even the most loyal United fan just knew that it couldn't go ahead after the Watford match and, and especially after the Liverpool and City results, which which hurt United fans the most. Um, so he's always been, you know, a reactionary type of guy. Um, and, I, and I think what's happened now has, has summed it up perfectly, really, because you had two weeks of the international break to to somehow try and put some sort of stability to things. You've ignored that. You've let the Watford match go ahead. And I mean, the Villarreal match was absolutely massive for United because if, if they'd lost that, then potentially they could have gone third in the group, not knowing that Atalanta wouldn't, um, wouldn't get a result in Switzerland. And then you're back to basically last season where you're in the Europa League in December. And, and that would have been just an, an absolute disaster again for United uh, financially and just for the squad in general who are pretty much on the floor already. So uh, it was a massive risk to take. Somehow they've managed to get their way out of it. But uh, it's clear that there's a complete lack of planning uh, above the manager's head. And I don't really know where they go from here. You know, I mean, if they bring in Ranić and... You know, he's an excellent manager, excellent tactician, and he said he wants to be either director of football or somehow above the new manager in the summer. Most clubs would accept that as a very sensible transition of power. But with United, you know, especially with Woodward somehow moving out, hopefully at the end of the season at least, and then John Murta taking over, I don't think he'd have any interest in in being governed by Ralph Ranić, but that's exactly the structure United need, which again highlights the problems that are in the club, that kind of fear of bringing in somebody who could potentially add a bit of structure. I mean, when Javi Ribalta left the club for Zenit, for me that that said everything you need to know. You, you had your director of football at the club who was employed, who knew what was going on, and he walked away from it. So alarm bells were ringing at that point, and I don't think we've ever really recovered from that in terms of putting the correct football structure in place for what United need. Um, I don't think Poch has it at PSG either, and I think he would have a bit more power at United, which is what's appealing to him as well. Um, but uh, th- there's just so much to fix uh, at the club from top to bottom, which is a shame because, I mean, even looking at the under-18s yesterday, apologies, under-19s at, at Villarreal, they had a fantastic win, and that lineup, no other club in England can match the type of talent that United put out yesterday. Um, so, if the right person does come in, there's a huge amount to work with there, but the problems above them are just absolutely outrageous, and it's very, very tough for anybody to come in and, and somehow try and address that balance. Mm. And I mean, if you do get Pochettino in, I think it has to be kind of stressed from the beginning that it will take time. I mean, if you think back to his his spell at Spurs, it was 12, 18 months before they started seeing kind of real results in terms of how he wanted to play and how he was getting the best out of certain players. Um, and like you said, in, ter- in terms of the playing personnel, we saw it last night with Jaden Sancho, um, who just hasn't, doesn't seem to have fit in so far. Um, and again, you're kind of wondering, have they planned this correctly like they've They've coveted him for, for two seasons or for two summers, splashed a lot of money on him and he, they don't seem to know what to do with him. Um, the bake has been obviously the, the kind of the the one everyone's kind of sniggered at uh, as he sat for only on the bench every week and he had his chance last night. I don't think he particularly took it. I think uh, he, he looked a little bit, again, like he didn't know what he was doing. Um, and this is kind of all harks back to 
something that we've talked about in the past and, and, and kind of a, something that comes up again and again, depending on, on who you read or who you talk to, is, is has this been a, a Ronaldo problem or is this just a kind of an overall how United are at the moment with their midfield, with the defence which is struggling, Maguire doesn't seem to be in the best of form. He, I, I'm not sure, even sure if he's fit at the moment. I mean, he's he, he's been playing, carrying injuries and knocks. Luke Shaw um, has been struggling and there's a lot of problems at United that I don't think Ronaldo has been the creator of nor the fixer of. So it's, you know, it's quick to, or it's easy to write off Ronaldo and his signing as, as the the kind of the cause for all of this. But if you do get a um, an interim, be it Reinick or Valverde or Steve Bruce, you know, it will take time to to get it all together. And especially if, if Pochettino comes in, because he will, at the end of the day, he will have to cater for Ronaldo, whether that's good or bad. Yeah, I think one of the first things you'll see um, from Pochettino, not just because of Ronaldo, but because of who the personnel is at the minute. But I think there'll be a fairly significant overhaul of the midfield to bring in a lot more dynamism. You think about who played in midfield for his Spurs team, um, and you're talking about the kind of very dynamic all-action runners, uh, which it's fair to say United don't exactly have in midfield at the minute. Um, but I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I don't know, was it, was it you on, on Twitter, Ender, was saying, like, I mean, I don't think Ronaldo signing has, you know, made Luke Shaw's form disappear into a hole made Aaron Mambasaka look like he can't kick a ball straight, nearly quite literally made Harry Maguire, you know, revert to the worst type of kind of cliched view of him in the last couple of weeks. Um, like, you know, yeah. like any sort of argument you can put forward for Ronaldo, and I don't really hold a, a whole lot of truck with it, to be honest with you, is just completely undermined by the fact that there is just this like, sh- like complete lack of confidence and form and performance from players in the side who would have no link up or relationship with Ronaldo. Like, it'd be one thing if you said, you know, Ronaldo's influence is impacting on attacking midfielders or wide forwards. But we're talking about, like, fullbacks and centre-halves who are having absolute nightmares. Uh, centre midfielders who, in the current system, we knew weren't good enough. We're also talking about problems that have existed at United for a greater or lesser degree for a lar- large part of Solskjaer's tenure. Like, it's not just this season that people have said, oh, maybe this Ole Gunnar Solskjaer fella doesn't have a, a long-term future at United. It's been a thing that people have been saying basically since he got the job on a full-time basis. Uh, like you said, and this kind of in-game management and things like that, people have been sceptical about for a while. Um, and like he's, he's had good runs and bad runs. So it's not a new... None of these problems for United, I don't think, are new. Uh, and I don't think you can hang a whole lot of them off Ronaldo, to be honest. I think you have to hang a lot of them off what's happening above United. And then I think you can hang some... Uh, at the manager's door and then you can hang some more at individual players' doors as well or as a collective but um, I think the problems are bigger and I think people are kind of codding themselves if they think somebody coming in and solving the Ronaldo problem in, in inverted commas would, would solve United because uh, as Enders alluded to it's going to be a little deeper and a bit of a longer process than that Yeah and I the only criticism I would have is there is this perception that he he did rely on youth and Apart from Brandon Williams and, and Mason Greenwood, Greenwood in particular, who is a phenomenal talent, and I think any manager who was coming in in the past two or three years probably would have fought, found a way to fit him into the squad. I, I, I felt he kind of ignored the talent a, a little bit. Um, we saw with Ahmad last season, I mean, his performance against Wolves, the goal against Milan, that's definitely a player who should have been integrated more. I mean, he has more minutes for Ivory Coast senior team than he has at United. So for me, that's a bit of an issue. Um, could he have potentially moved one mat on two or three years ago to accommodate Angel Gomez? I think so, because Gomez is a, an absolutely phenomenal playmaker. And there are a couple of others as well who would have felt that they should have gotten more opportunities. So there were things that he definitely could have improved of in that regard. But that really doesn't mean that the problems above him aren't the overriding issue here and that's probably what finished him off in the end um and ignoring defensive midfield it's as you know we've discussed for a very very long time van hal tried with schneiderlin Mourinho tried with matic it it let them down both badly Solskjaer didn't even try and address it which is probably his biggest flaw in terms of the money spent in the transfer market but um it's something that the next manager will definitely need to fix. I mean, as Phil said, that midfield dynamism, Moussa Dembele in particular under Poch was a huge asset. And I don't think Spurs have ever recovered from uh, 
not having that type of player in midfield anymore. So if United can fix that issue, I think there's a there's a lot else there to work with. But yeah, it's uh, it's a big challenge for the next guy coming in. I suppose if we move on to other Premier League matters uh, quickly, lads, just looking at some of the results from the weekend and the big game, I suppose, was Liverpool and Arsenal. And I suppose we've kind of we've been a little bit downtrodden on Mikel Arteta over the past couple of uh, months. Obviously, that result against City at the beginning of the season um, was hugely damaging, but they've steadied the shape and they've actually looked quite impressive, I think, over the past couple of weeks. Um, some of the players that are beginning to come through look very good indeed. I mean, Emil Smith-Rowe looks a, a fantastic player. Um, the, he seems to have found a system that works and is getting the best out of uh, Kari Saka as well and the, uh, the midfield two in the middle. Um, and defensively as well, they've been a little bit more assured. Um, and Aaron Ramsdale, I think we mentioned it last time out, is finally um, looking like a, a very good co- uh, goalie indeed and uh, proving a lot of the doubters wrong. But um, Phil, 20 minutes into the game against Liverpool at the weekend, I thought uh, they were hanging pretty well. They, they they looked up for it. I thought they were set up very well. Um, the kind of stifling a lot Liverpool were trying to do, but um, it kind of all went to, to crap then after that, really. It was a, a, a pretty uh, um, impressive, I suppose, uh, dem- demolition in the end from Liverpool to to, to put four past Arsenal and, and, and make Arteta uh, look very um, poor indeed. I mean, it's easy... Um, in retrospect, to kind of poke holes in the starting eleven, but you look at uh, who he started along the left hand side: uh, Smith Rowe and, and Tavares. You know, very inexperienced. He had Kieran Tierney on the bench, and it was down that right hand side that uh, Salah and Alexander Arnold had a lot of success. And um, I think it, it probably shows that Arteta, although he is starting to get some things right against uh, or for Arsenal, he's still a little bit off. Um, the likes of Klopp and Pep in, in that kind of uh, standing there as uh, in his uh, early days into management so far. Yeah, I really have to commend Arteta for showing the perfect blend of Pep apprenticeship and Arsenal heritage in that he showed his arse on the touchline by getting shirty with Klopp and then got absolutely fucking stuffed at Anfield, <laughs> which is a brilliant blend of what Guardiola does at Anfield and what Arsenal have been doing at Anfield since Klopp sh- showed up. So I have to give him massive credit for that. Um, no, I, I, to, to be serious, I think you're right. Uh, I thought the first half an hour, genuinely up until that row that he had with Klopp, I thought Arsenal would be pretty happy. Liverpool hadn't really gotten going. I didn't think there was anything really in the game. And then all of a sudden, 15 minutes before half time, Liverpool got really on top initially down the left. Actually, I thought uh, Sim- Simicast had an awful lot of joy. But you're right, the more Liverpool got Salah on the ball, they were trying to double up on him and actually not just not able to handle him at all. And then aided and abetted very helpfully by Arsenal, Liverpool kind of pressed the life out of them in that 15 minutes after halftime and the game was was really taken away from them. Um, Liverpool kind of put on that classic high press in a big game that they do under, that they've been doing under Klopp now for six years. And I think what we saw was that Arsenal are not going to be good enough to beat the top four sides. And but maybe now finally are starting to get better again at beating the sides they probably should be beating or could be beating. So they've had a really good run since those disappointing results at the start of the season. But if you look at who they've played, it hasn't been fantastic sides. So I think maybe it's kind of a bit more of a reversion to the Arsenal that we expected to see in terms of competing for kind of a fifth and sixth, as opposed to the side really who were closer to the to the like lower half of the top half, if that makes sense, in the last couple of years. So I think there's loads for Arteta to be positive about. Probably no harm for the uh, the, the hype and enthusiasm to get a little bit of a burst, and I think just to let them know that they're not maybe as far along as they thought they were. As you said, like loads and loads of exciting young players, youngest average, a youngest average age of any squad in the Premier League, which is quite good. Loads of really exciting players. Some of them still a bit kind of callow and green, and probably. You know, not needed. You know, you don't never need to get beaten for now, but probably needed to see what it was like at the pointy end of the Premier League. And um, so, I, like, I think for Arteta, broadly moving in the right way, I'll hold my hands up. I thought they were really, really goosed at the start of the season, and uh, not just those defeats to, to City and Chelsea, but the Brentford game. Since it's turned out that maybe they're not going to be the only side to struggle against Brentford, uh, like there's positives there for Arteta, but there's still a journey to go, and I think there is still a significant gap between them and the best three or four sides in the league. Uh, not to say they can't close it, but I think there's probably going to be a few nights like that ahead of them still in their development, at least for the next little while. 
Yeah, it's funny because even with the first 20 minutes, which I thought Arsenal were actually very impressive, but if somebody put a gun to my head at that point and said, there's one team who's going to lose 4-0 at the end of the season, <laughs> you know, you would have to say it's Arsenal at Anfield because it just seems to be the way it goes for them. Um, and the Arteta row with Klopp, I mean, usually that kind of stuff is insignificant, but if there's somebody in a ground that you don't really want to start that kind of stuff against, it would be Klopp at Anfield. And it did change the game. Um and then after that, Liverpool were just so comfortable. Do you and think very, that was um, Klopp playing a little bit of 4D chess there with Arteta just to yeah, get the I crowd so. going? Because it yeah. was a little bit dead up until then. Yeah, no, Klopp is always, he's one of the most receptive managers when it comes to the crowd. And um, even, you know, that infamous West Brom 2-2 celebration, he said yeah. after the match, you know, I need to get the Liverpool crowd on my side. I need them to get behind the team. And I felt they weren't doing that today. Um, and he's always been, since then, extremely receptive in terms of when the crowd is just a bit flat, not really behind the team, more than probably any other manager in the league, to be honest. So I think he would have loved the fact that Arteta had a bit of a go at him and he really played up to it. And, you know, Liverpool fans absolutely love that. I think any of us love that. I mean, one of the issues I've had with Oli is certainly sitting in the stands looking at that iPad and a bit miserable and you want your manager at the side fighting for the team and players respond to that the fans respond to that um, and Klopp has always been you know one of the best in Europe at that even at Dortmund you know he was you know he had the crowd in the palm of his hand and and that's why Anfield is such a perfect fit for him so um, you know it, it just worked out perfectly for him after that and it's it's probably not too big of a surprise that Liverpool really upped their game after that um, and, you know, Salah in particular was absolutely phenomenal, I thought, the second half. Um, and, you know, Alexander-Arnold up against uh, the young young left-back there was a bit of a mismatch, which is a shame, really, because he's actually started the season very, very well. Um, and it's interesting to see where, where Arsenal go with that, because you know, I thought Tierney was one of their best signings in the past two to three years. So uh, where they go from that, I'm not really sure, but... Um, I think Arsenal still need to slightly sort out that front four in terms of, you know, obviously Smith Rowe is really nailing down his place as number 10, but Lacazette as that kind of right wing player, it sometimes it works for them, particularly at home, but I think, you know, Pepe would really, really be a huge asset if he could somehow fit into that, you know, front four uh, on the right-hand side. And I think there's a lot more to come from Odegaard, particularly if they can get him in the uh, pivot as well with uh, Partey. So, there's a few issues for Arteta to work out, but I think overall the progression has been, you know, clear for all to see, especially as Phil said, after the awful start of the season. Um, and, you know, I was fully against <laughs> the Arteta hype for a very, very long time, uh, considering he just, you know, filled Pep's water bottle for three years, whatever it was. But uh, I think he has shown a lot about himself in the last couple of years, not just the FA Cup win, but he's, He's dealt with the bad moments probably better than a lot of other managers would have. Um, and there's there's a lot to work with at Arsenal now. And I think they're a, a genuine contender for top four, which sounds a bit weak saying it out loud. But, um, you know, that's that's what they need to be aiming for at this moment mm-hmm. in time and then build on hopefully a Champions League campaign next season. Well, they're not far off. I mean, they're fifth at the moment, um, three points behind West Ham, I think, who obviously lost at the weekend. So, um uh, not beyond the, the realm of possibility there uh, in, in current form. Um, I suppose the other big thing in, in the Premier League over the past week or so that we haven't had a chance to speak about yet has been the uh, the manager merry-go-round. Um, it's been a big week for uh, condiments, um, ketchup and, and mayonnaise banned um, all over the place. Uh, I think if you uh, if you look in the window of, of some clubs canteens and if you see uh, a ketchup on the on the, the tables you know you're uh, you're in trouble so uh Stephen Gerrard has been on the case at Villa Dean Smith at Norwich um obviously Antonio Conte at, at Spurs um I suppose Phil Gerrard is obviously the the big one um I think it's probably a move that suited all parties even though um I suppose you know he doesn't have the experience as Dean Smith has but I think that was beginning to get a little bit stale, and I think Jared is just the kind of type of character that will come in and and raise their level up to uh to to where it should be with uh, some of the talent they have in the squad. 
Um, and obviously, uh, two nil win on, on your opening day against a, a pretty decent side that we've spoken about this season in, in Brighton and Graham Potter is a, is a nice way to, to kick things off for him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like it, it wasn't exactly the easiest starts for him, uh, like you said, with, with Brighton playing as they have this season. I think you're right in, in terms of like that kind of a dip in enthusiasm that had seemed to happen a little bit under Smith. Uh, if nothing else, Gerard's aura will bring that in, at least in the short term. He does from the little bit I know about his spell in, in Scotland, he does seem to be a bit of a force personality manager, kind of a man manager with a lot of the tactical stuff with Michael Beale. Um, he, he is probably most influenced, I think, by out of the managers he worked for is, is Benitez, which maybe doesn't offer loads and loads of hope for how dynamic the team will be, but they will probably end up being quite effective. Uh, from his point of view, makes loads of sense because Villa are a team uh, with owners with deep pockets who have been willing to spend. It's, it's easy to see a way that things go well from, but what the 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 ceiling is on the expectations, I suppose, is a little harder to figure out with Villa, and um, because like are they, like they might end up being a top four team. Will it be in the window that he's with them? It's hard to know. You, like your Europa League feels like a little bit of a stretch at the minute, just with how kind of quagmired that that section of the table is. So I suppose success might be a slightly difficult and nebulous thing from the nab onto, but I think it made sense for him to leave, given the way things were going at Rangers, given the profile that Villa have, and from Villa's point of view, they're going to have somebody who's going to be very hungry to 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 show that he's up to the level. They're going to have somebody who'll really drive standards, who has a good backroom team around them, and has shown an adeptness in European competition in a, in a couple of years that he can kind of mix it a little bit, which is good because you're not learning a lot about what the Rangers manager can do against St. Johnston or Hamilton, but uh, you did see a little bit more from him in Europe. So I think, like you said, for all parties, it probably works out a good start. I will be interested to see how he does in a tough period. He was always, or sorry, he was never exactly kind of an upbeat or cheery character when he was playing, but he kind of had the talent to carry that off when he is in charge of keeping morale up for a squad who could end up being kind of, you know, mired and kind of in mid table with not a lot to play for or going through a bad patch. I am interested to see how he handles it with the increased scrutiny that'll come um, because of who he is. But um, no, like I'm I'm interested obviously with Nye on not five years time, maybe 10 years time as a potential Liverpool manager, I will be following it with interest. But uh, in and of itself, I think it's quite an interesting move. Yeah, I like his... career progression to be honest you know Liverpool under 18s for a year two and a half years in Scotland and now Aston Villa I think it's all very natural there's nothing kind of shocking about it Mm. in terms of you know we see other managers promoted far too quickly who haven't really learned how to deal with players how to deal with different personalities how to deal with failure as well as success and I think Gerard has gone through pretty much all of that it, it is interesting, as Phil said, how will he deal with the low moments? And I felt, you know, at Rangers, he was probably a bit aggressive towards a few of their poor performances, especially in the league when he felt they should have won. He he really put that all, all on the players. But uh, apart from that, I, I think this Villa side is really, really interesting for him um, because of the quality they have in midfield in particular. Um, whether they can consistently score enough goals with Watkins is something that he'll need to figure out but you know the performance wasn't actually great at the weekend but any new manager starting off he he just needs to get over the line and especially against such a highly rated manager and team like Brighton and Potter I think it was a an excellent result for uh, Villa and I'm really interested to see how he goes I think it's it's a natural progression that he will be a, a Liverpool manager over time I'd be very surprised if he wasn't, but in fairness to him, he's not taken any shortcuts in his career. Uh, he's very, very calculated in terms of the decisions he makes, both with his teams and, and what he's trying to do and, and achieve both personally and professionally. So um, I think that deserves a lot of credit uh, in these days, especially with the kind of former player, former legend actually becoming manager so quickly. Um, across all leagues in Europe, we've seen it at Roma, particularly Milan, now Barcelona, uh, United, obviously. Uh, many teams have tried to fast-track former players into success as managers, and it just hasn't worked out. But with Gerard, he he's very, very thoughtful and calculated in terms of needing to really learn the ropes before he takes on a huge job. And, and the Villa job is a massive job. I mean, they're still one of the most successful English clubs there has been. 
um, and and the timing actually seems perfect. So I'm really interested to see how they go. Yeah, you, you won't get backflips from him on the touchline or in his interviews. Or, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, I think he he deserves a lot of credit for what he's done uh, in the last four years. He's he's made all the right decisions and he's had a lot of success. And uh, I think that will continue at Villa. Elsewhere, then. Um... Elsewhere then, obviously, Dean Smith got off to winning ways at Norwich 2-1 there against Southampton. And they move above Eddie Howe's Newcastle. And obviously, he wasn't present um, at St. James's Park against Brentford for their three-all draw. He had COVID. Um, one manager that we've kind of talked about uh, over the past couple of weeks. And, I mean, he's been linked with the Man United job. And I was kind of wondering, you know that Leicester City would quietly be delighted if another club kind of came in and said, do you know what, we'll, we'll you know, pay the buyout clause or whatever it is to, to get Rodgers out of the way. I think, you know, I'm starting to wonder, has he hit a ceiling there with them? Um, I mean, on paper, he has a brilliant squad um, with, you know, loads of talent and they bought, or they appeared to buy quite, quite well in the summer. Um, and a couple of the guys that they have bought, Pat and Deca, um and Sumaria haven't really got going yet. Um, obviously the defensive troubles of, you know, the injury to Wesley Fofana has been uh, a, a huge blow for them. Um, I don't think Sionchu has, has been at the best of form um, and the player they brought in, Vestergaard, kind of a short notice to replace Fofana, you know, isn't up to that standard at all. But I'd be interested to hear what you think. I, I think, you know, from what I've seen of Leicester this season, their struggles in Europe, um, his struggles in the past in Europe with Celtic and Liverpool, um, I would have been very cagey if I was a United fan if if uh, if they did move for Rodgers, which it looks like they're moving away from in fairness. But no, I would have thought that if uh, if that talk kind of persisted, that Leicester would be uh, pretty happy to move on from him and kind of get another manager in who can kind of take the, the team and the squad that they have to the next level. Yeah, I, I think it's actually a really good point, Kev. Um, the, like from Rodgers' point of view, he probably couldn't have timed his dip in form much worse because he was being talked about like before Solskjaer even went as a potential for United he was he's also been featured very prominently in talk of who follows Pep at City um, and that all looks really well and good when he's done what he's done at Leicester but then you stop and you look and you think and you see that he's let top four slip through their fingers twice so his his established pattern now is not qualifying for the Champions League and now, as you said, a squad that received back in the summer is severely underperforming. I think we, we flagged it up um, early or, or before the season that it was a potential sticky point for him because they'd come so close and it was it was kind of taken as given that they had such good performances. But like there, there, comes a, there comes a point where you do need to get something over the line. He didn't twice. And now it, it looks like the kind of performances are dipping a little bit. And all of a sudden, he doesn't have a whole lot to fall back on. Two fifth-place finishes with Leicester doesn't look all that impressive. When Ranieri won the fucking league with them, so like it does look, it doesn't look quite as good for for him to say, "Well, I came fifth twice, and we spent longer in the top four than any side over the last two years when they didn't actually even make it." So I, I do think his case looks a lot weaker now that Leicester are playing poorly. I don't think he's a bad manager overnight or anything, but I do agree with you. I don't think it'd be a slam dunk for United. I think he's like he's a progressive young coach with some really good ideas, but uh, I I would imagine that there's. There, there will be some sort of reticence there because he is establishing this track record of being good to a point. Uh, and I don't know if it's the point that would be good enough for United. If he'd manage up, maybe he would. But uh, I, I, I do think it might not be a bad thing for United to miss out on him. I think disappointment is really important for them to get right. And I'm not sure if uh, if he'd be the right one for them or not. Yeah, I, I think he's hanging on by a thread. Obviously helped by Napoli losing in Moscow this evening. Otherwise, their Europa League campaign might have been over. Um, but their league performances have been absolutely shambolic. Obviously, United made them look good, which is kind of <laughs> our forte at the moment. But that aside, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the the performance against Arsenal, uh, the performance at the weekend. I mean, it, like Leicester, even after Ranieri left... Um, and when Rodgers came in, performances against, you know, Arsenal and, and these type of teams at home, that was their forte, really. They really enjoyed those type of matches. Teams who would go at them, they were able to counterattack. Obviously, Vardy would have pace in behind. And then 
Harvey Barnes, Tiedemans will come uh, into their four, but that's really let them down this season. And they don't really look like having a plan anymore. Uh, it's all very disjointed. Madison has fallen off a cliff when he was so crucial to their style and pattern of play and, uh, and it was linked, obviously, to United and then Arsenal and it just all seems to have fallen apart. So, you know, the Fofana injury obviously was a was a big issue, but it shouldn't have derailed their season the way it has done. Um, he hasn't integrated Samari or Daka and Vardy in his mid-30s now. He still has a bit of pace about him, but it's not as dynamic as it was two or three years ago. And I think he has massive, massive problems just in terms of their structure and, and more the morale, really, at this stage. It's almost hitting towards Solskjaer at United level of, you know, they turn up and it's all a bit mediocre and down and the, there's no real energy to them anymore. I mean, Leicester at their best in the past few seasons, they pressed so high, they had so much energy, so much pace. Um, there was so much conviction to their play and, and all that seems to be lost now for some reason. And, and it's a big shame because Rodgers came in and he just seemed to be the absolute perfect fit for them in terms of a progressive manager, very, very modern in, in terms of how he wants to play football, as we saw, not just at Liverpool, but at Swansea and very successful at Celtic. Um, but it's it's all tailing off very, very quickly now and I, I can't see how it's sustainable for them. After losing top four twice in the last two seasons, there seems to be some sort of hangover for that, that the FA Cup and winning the Community Shield hasn't really fixed those trophies don't seem to rejuvenate teams or fans even the way they used to so um, I think it's getting very very difficult for him First I thought you cheeky bollocks if he's right on excuse me <laughs> this is live On matters a little bit closer to home then lads um, big FAI Cup final at the weekend um, I think at last count there's been over 25,000 tickets sold um, and I think generally there's been a, a pretty positive bounce uh, around the League of Ireland over the past couple of months. I think now that it's starting to get back on on television and the under-21s are beginning to do well and there's a couple of guys starting to get known and, and, and names starting to get out. Um, obviously on, on Boa's side, we've we've Georgie Kelly, who's top scorer this season um, and uh, nominee for Player of the Year. So is Chris Forrester at St. Pat's, who uh, finished the season pretty strongly uh, in second place to Rovers. Um, I think it's the, the first Dublin final in, in quite a long time, but uh, it should be a, a nice occasion and a big game to, to finish off uh, and kind of give uh, a little bit more of a feel that you know, Irish football is, is in a better place now than kind of before the pandemic and, and things are starting to lift a little bit. Yeah, completely agree. I think like, while not directly related, I think I completely agree with the kind of the bounce factor that there feels around around Irish football at the minute. I think this, the Stephen Kenny factor, I don't think, should be underestimated and helping that with domestic football because he's still so intimately linked to the league. I think like a rising tide lifts all boats in that way, and even with even with the, the women who I know we're going to talk about in a little while, and like their cup final after being on the television and the national team going well. So in general, Irish football. I think it's just in, a, in a quite a good place at the minute. Uh, the cup final itself, it's nice, I think, that it's not the league winners in this, which has been the case quite regularly over the last little while. There's been somebody going for a double. This is a piece of silverware to kind of frank a season for either side. And um, Bowes should be, I think, disappointed with how they did this year. Fifth place, I don't think, is, is quite good enough when they were tipped. Maybe not to be as, as strong as Rovers, but definitely more... In, in the features for European places for sure and more of a challenger fifth place What like I think for the squad they have for the players they have and for the amount of players of the month awards that they managed to win I think um, fifth place is, is a bit of a letdown and they've got no safety net now if they don't win on Sunday they've no European football next year when they got through a couple of rounds of the, of the Europa Conference League qualifiers this year so that would be a bit of a bummer for them um, as for Pats Really good year for Pats, um, second in the league, probably a little ahead of schedule, I think, for Chris O'Donnell. Um, like a good mixture there of kind of older heads like like Robbie Benson and Chris Forrester, as you said, who kind of have had a bit of an Indian summer, and, and younger lads and, and, and kind of smart loan signings like Vitez Jaros on, on loan from Liverpool. He's uh, up for their senior player of the year uh, in, in, internally in the club. So I think it, it would end, it would kind of end a really good season for Pats if they could do it. It would kind of rescue things a little bit for Bowes, having been a little bit disappointed while developing quite an exciting side. I think he longs under a little bit of pressure there just to 
to show a little bit of progression because fifth feels like a bit of a backslide compared to where they were heading. Whereas Pats may be playing with house money, but if they win the cup, all of a sudden it's a really good season. Um, I think it's great. It's going to be the I think it's going to be the highest attended cup final of the Aviva Stadium era, which is great. I think that's really positive. Two well supported sides, two Dublin sides, like you said, but also I think just quite a wide appeal. It's it's nice, like it's it's Sunday evening, and um, cheap tickets bring kids and families along. I think it's it's it is going to be nice. Hopefully, be a good occasion. Cup finals over the last while, if they haven't always been great spectacles, there's been good drama. The, either the game has been good or it's gone to penalties and been quite exciting. So hopefully we get the good game and the drama um, on on Sunday. Um, Pat's end of the season hasn't been great. They haven't been good basically since the league went from them. I, t- I think they've only won something like three league games since the end of September. You know, and they lost to Rovers that time uh, and the league kind of went kind of theoretically. Um, th- their form hasn't been fantastic. So I don't know, you'd worry a little bit about them potentially, but they did finish 10 points ahead of Bowes this year. So, um, it's hard to know, but either side, I think, will take something tangible from it if they can manage it. Yeah, I think we're in excellent shape, to be honest. I mean, a lot of casual watchers would have expected Dundalk and Shamrock Rovers to be the FAI Cup final. But uh, to have two, you know, traditionally famous teams in Ireland uh, fighting out this year, I think is is absolutely fantastic just for the cup itself. Um I think it's been a very, very positive season for the FAI overall. I mean, the matches that were televised on RTE and we spoke about a few weeks ago that they perhaps missed a few tricks in terms of following teams in Europe, etc. But I mean, even the quality that we've seen from Shamrock Rovers in the last few weeks on RTE has been absolutely phenomenal. And uh, I think Irish football in general has has never been in, in better shape and in terms of the last sort of four to five years when it looked... Like it was really on a slump there for a while. Uh, and as Phil said, I think Kenny has a huge influence on that. I mean, he's somebody who's extremely well regarded in terms of Irish football circles. Uh, and it's great to see kind of Bose putting in some sort of competitive performances again. And I, I know Phil feels they've underperformed this season, but for me, they'd be one of the traditionally strong Irish teams. I remember Galway traveling there for years and really, really struggling badly. So um i think it's a massive massive game for keith long in terms of what he's trying to do there um and i'm really really interested to see see how they go and and the fact that the attendance is going to be much much higher than it has been in previous years just shows that people are really really involved again in irish football and the league of ireland in particular and i think there's been a lot of efforts on on social media in particular to to big that up and uh in terms of the local coverage as well which we know can be improved a lot but um, I think think we're in we're in pretty pretty good shape, um, and I'm really looking forward to it. I think it'll be a really really competitive match, and and again as Phil said, the last few uh, FAI Cup finals have been really really competitive and very exciting. So I think Sunday hopefully will be the same again. Indeed, and I suppose uh, I'm sure you've seen the news uh, down in Warford. The, I suppose as good as the League of Ireland has been, it is always going to be a, a bit of a mad basket at times um, with the news that they sacked Mark Burcham uh, ahead of a huge relegation playoff final against UCD. Um, I think it all started off on Twitter yesterday with uh, with Burcham releasing some sort of statement saying that he'd been suspended for the game uh, over supposed disagreements. Uh, with the ownership, and then the ownership turned around and said, "You know what? You're sacked." Uh, a couple of game uh, days before the game, um, which is kind of peak League of Ireland, I suppose, and, and shows the side of it that uh, a lot of people are probably most familiar with. Um, but I suppose you know, if you're Watford and and it's the run that they've had over the past couple of months to to almost survive relegation, I mean, they obviously survived automatic relegation, but um, I think there are in the top half of the league in terms of form um, to, to avoid the, the automatic drop. Unfortunately, uh, just two points um, w- w- was separated themselves and, and Finn Harps and Drogheda to to fall into that playoff zone where they where they meet UCD, who were uh, in, in cracking form and, and have a couple of really nice players there. Um, I suppose as good as things have been for the League of Ireland, uh, that kind of mad storyline is never too far away, lads. I, I, I think no matter how sophisticated the league gets, 
no matter how nice the stadiums get and how good the football gets, you do want a little bit of the greatest league in the world just to stay in there, don't you? That little kind of sliver <laughs> of absolute fucking chaos. Um, no, I, I, like it, it's it's an absolutely mad situation. From Waterford's point of view, you'd hope that maybe the kind of drilling and preparation is done and they can kind of create a bit of a siege mentality around this and kind of, you know, the world is against us and we're going to push through. Like you said, like coming up against the UCD team in, in, in really good form. So it's it's certainly not a given. But you'd you'd from their point of view, in terms of the disruption that this has no doubt been, you'd hope that maybe it could be used, like I said, kind of as a bit of a siege mentality, uh, circle the wagons a little bit, and that it won't be completely detrimental because it would be a pity for it to be to be decided on something that happened off the pitch and outside of their control. Uh, you'd hope that that they could at least try to find some way to kind of compartmentalize uh, it rather and, uh, and and give it a good lash because um after the after the run they put together the least they their their due is kind of a, a fair go at it. Yeah, I've been there in a relegation playoff when Galway played Drahada in 2003 and I mean it's it's impossible to describe what a massive match it is for uh, any League of Ireland club and, and we won the first leg 2-0 and, and still still didn't get promotion and it was just absolutely devastating and it led to a spiral that actually ended up in administration really so that just in my mind puts what's happened um, on Monday such uh, almost impossible to describe really how a, how a club can operate like that five days before such a massive game and you know, it's 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 very modern in a way. Have a have a coach kind of defend himself on Twitter, and then the ownership sack him thirty minutes later. Uh, but um, you know, it must be pretty devastating as well for Waterford fans, um, who, you know, as you said, Kevin, their form has really picked up, and and would have been really looking forward to this game, and how flat they and the team must feel. Um, so it's it's an embarrassment for the league, if we're being honest, because that type of thing just shouldn't happen. I mean, there are ways to deal with things behind the scenes and uh, this online tit for tat just isn't the way to go about it. But uh, it, it's a big shame because I think it's been a great season overall for Irish football and, and we're all heading in the right direction with not just the national team and the young players that are coming through, but I think the quality in League of Ireland uh, and the first division in the past sort of two years that people are now seeing because of the the online passes, it's it's been phenomenal really compared to where we were five, 10 years ago when it was really on the floor. Um, and these are the type of stories we can do without. Damien Duff coming in as well at Shelburne is, is a huge story as well that hopefully uh, reignites them as, as one of the premier clubs in Ireland because we all associate them obviously with their Champions League run and, and their performances against Deportivo. So those type of things are important for all of us who grew up with League of Ireland. Um, but this type of thing doesn't help anybody and I think it's it's a big shame. Just to finish off then, lads, on the women's team, um, two big qualifiers in, in, in their ambitions for uh, World Cup qualification. Um, I think up until the last round of games, it looked like it was going to be between them and Finland for that second place uh, spot behind Sweden, who kind of looked like runaway winners of that group, considering their strength um, at this level. But an away win at Finland was absolutely massive. Um, and I think I said it in the run-up to that game, it's just the, the coverage that the team is beginning to get um, is getting better and better all the time. And it doesn't kind of feel like a token anymore. It feels like Irish media uh, and some of the, the people covering the, the women's side of the game have a genuine interest in it. And, and I think that's kind of starting to translate to the public as well, um, where they might throw on the game if it's on television, um, or at least they're kind of getting a little bit more familiar with uh, some of the names. Um, obviously, Caitlin McKay, but Arsenal is a huge name in, in, in women's soccer, not only in Ireland, but uh, across the UK and, and the world. Um, you have the likes of Leanne Kiernan, who's banging in the goals for, for Liverpool at the moment, and, and she's beginning to get a name for herself. Um, and even down to the likes of Ellen Malai, Phil, you mentioned the uh, the Women's Cup final. Um, even though she's not in the international squad this time around, she's kind of she's going viral every couple of weeks with a with a goal or a piece of skill. Um, and she's only seventeen there for Wexford, which kind of shows some of the talent that the Irish women's team have coming through. But um, a huge week ahead, and I think um, uh, both games in Tele, you'd um, anticipate a, a big crowd for each of them, and I think. Uh, the FEI have been doing a, a ticket deal for, for both of the games, uh, which should attract 
some people in the door there. But uh, a big week, and it'd be great to see them pick up uh, six points there and, and put them well on course for for World Cup qualification, which uh, I think is it's down in Australia in a, in a year or two time. Yeah, I think actually Thursday's game is going to be the best attended uh, Irish Women's International Atala ever, which is great. I think there's done five and a half thousand tickets last I saw. Uh, obviously time to do a little few more than that so uh, it's been great I think uh, to, to, to give them their due I think um, having uh, Sky and Cadbury come in as sponsors has also helped massively just in terms of the spend that they are putting behind it and um, like uh, every kind of second promoter tweet that I see is from either Cadbury or Sky on my Twitter timeline at the minute pushing the women's team sponsorship which is great it's it's kind of platformed those players like you said Kev like like Katie McCabe like Anya Gorman, like like Rihanna Jarrett, and people like that have been getting a real platform and a push. Um, like the 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 mood around the camp is great. It's funny you mentioned the Ankaren and Ellen Malloy, and the two of them are after having to pull out of the squad through injury, which is really frustrating because they are in ridiculously good form. Uh, I suppose most importantly from Ireland's point of view is making sure that Katie McCabe and Denise Sullivan are okay because they really make this side tick. Um, these two games coming up. I think are the exact sort of games in the last campaign that they actually messed up. So they performed really well against the the, the higher seeded teams in in the group last time, and it was games against Greece and and Ukraine that cost us qualification. So the importance now of building on that win against Finland it, it's it's massive because it was unexpected obviously to win away to the second seed. They would have taken a draw, but a win has really put us in a great position. And um, they have to build on that now because it's exactly the sort of games that tripped them up the last time, unfortunately. And um, so if they do come out of this with six points out of six, you'd have to think we're in a really good position uh, to, to qualify for or to get, I think it's a, I think it's a playoff, I think, isn't it? If you're second, I'm not entirely sure on that, but we're in a great position to come second. Playoff, yeah. If we, if we get six out of six, and you, you'd hope, given like Katie McCabe, I think, wasn't she player of the year last, last, last month or player of the month rather last month in, in the YSL? Uh, and we know all about the quality that's been pumped into that league over the last couple of years. So I think we're in a really good place at the minute. A lot of our our team are playing, unlike the men, they're playing playing quite big roles for their clubs, be that in the YSL, in the Championship over in England, in the Women's National League here, or in, in the NWSL in, in the States. Um, so I think the idea that they're playing is very important because they're in a really good rhythm. I think we're starting to see a little bit of what we're what we know to be Vera Powell's style. Um, so I hope that they that, that they can push through from what was a very good first window in this campaign. I hope they push it through because, like you said, it feels like a real moment now for the women's team to 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 make a major tournament when the spotlight is really starting to shine on them. It, I think it could be the making of women's football if we make a World Cup. Uh, you think about the generation of little girls that it would inspire. Um, it'll be amazing. So I hope now it's a it's a really really big week. Probably is a bigger week than it should be this early in the campaign. But six points would really put us in a really strong position. Yeah, it's absolutely massive. And if you think about the fact that we beat Australia 3-2 back in December and you look at the type of players they're churning out, you know, obviously Sam Kerr, who's one of the best in the world, and Mary Fowler, Alana Kennedy, these type of players. And, and we went toe-to-toe with them and um, it was a fantastic match. And uh, my sister actually lives beside the Tala Stadium and even she says, you know, the buzz around the stadium when... Uh, the women play there now uh, is is something different than anything she's experienced before. Uh, and I think hanging on to Vera Powell after the last campaign, I, w- I fully expected her to leave after the last campaign, not so much due to our quality or anything like that. I, I just didn't think that caliber of manager would, would stick it out after um, one campaign with us. So the fact that she has, I think... Um, says a lot about the quality that we have in the team. A lot of these players are in their kind of mid to late 20s, so they're right at their peak. So this really is the time for Irish women's football. Uh, I was in Dunboyne on Sunday watching the uh, under-13s, Greystones and, and Dunboyne teams because we sponsored one of them. And, you know, it's it, it's just all different now when it comes to, to that level and, and the effort that's been put in by coaches and parents and everything like that. I, I don't think any of that can be underestimated. Um, and the quality that's now coming through at grassroots level in terms of female football that just was never there in this country before. So I think the next five to ten years are extremely exciting in terms of what the Irish women's team can do, but we definitely need to qualify for a big tournament just to keep that momentum going now. Uh, And I think in terms of the quality in the squad, the quality of the management team behind them, this really is a huge time 
in terms of progressing that uh, and the attendance figures that we're seeing in Tallinn now in the last few months has been phenomenal and we'll see that again on Thursday night so um, you know I'm really looking forward to seeing what they can do and, and I hope they can keep that momentum going because it's really really important in terms of where women's football is going in this country Absolutely and it does feel like all aspects of Irish football has began to turn a corner Um now that you know who has kind of left the, left the show and things have moved on from from how poorly it was run over the past couple of years and the women are starting to get their due, the, the League of Ireland is starting to, to come good and obviously the national team uh, and some of the underage teams are, are starting to pick up and I think in general the, the, the broad interest in Irish soccer, be it women, women or men, um, is, is has improved for the better so uh, definitely tune into that one on Thursday night against Slovakia if you can on RTE lads thanks a million for joining me tonight thanks, thanks lads respect respect man respect 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 so we leave it there so okie doke Good night and God bless.